we get to continue our study now in the book of Nehemiah. We get to start that uh, afresh. How many of you have been reading with us uh, this whole week? We got through six plus chapters of, of Nehemiah. For those of you who may be new here, uh, one of the things we do here at Heights Christian Church is we're on a, we're on a mission to go through the Bible in five years together. And, and how we do that is we come together and we're reading as a congregation six days a week to go through the Bible. We're actually over two and a half years in. This is year three of, of our study. Um, really looking forward over these next couple of years to finishing up this, this study of the Bible together. For those of you who have been here since the beginning of our journey, just think after five years, we're going to have listened to over 250 sermons that help explain the scriptures that we've been reading together for five years. I, I can't help but think how much better it's going to help us to understand God, his plan for us, why Jesus came and how we can convey that to the world around us. So that's, that's what we're doing. This past week, we began the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, I would say, more than any other book in the Bible, I would call the everyman. He's the everyman. Because when I read Nehemiah, I, I don't feel like I'm reading, this isn't a prophet, Right? This isn't a prophet who has come to proclaim the word of the Lord. This isn't a king who's been appointed by God to be in this position. This is a man, simply put, who has been given a burden based upon the promises of God. And because of those things, he has a God-given task that he wants to see through. We get to read that journey especially in these first six, six plus chapters of, of what burdened Nehemiah. So if you will, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read the entire chapter together. And it says this, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakalah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived from exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I had heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, the prayer your servant is praying before you today, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins of we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, and have committed, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you, and we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you, you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return 
to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. What we see here is the beginning of the burden of Nehemiah. Report comes back from the exiles who are out there who have been brought back to Jerusalem and to that place. And he asks about it. And he says, it's bad for the people who are there. Said, Jerusalem's in a bad place and the wall is, is not there. And the gates are torn down. That's an interesting thing, right? A thing to be mentioning that the walls and the gates are torn down, right? Nothing about the temple, that's interesting, right? Nothing about the houses, but the walls and the gates are torn down. Why such an emphasis on walls and gates? Well, simply put, walls and gates were the protective barrier from raiders, from other people coming in and destroying further the settlement that was just being re-inhabited again by the people of Israel. People of Israel coming out of exile, coming into their own place, coming into the capital city of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is basically left defenseless. So anybody could come in and raid it. Anybody could come in and destroy it. And this burdened the heart of Nehemiah. And so he begins to pray that God, number one, will bring this remnant back in strength. And number two, that God would grant him favor to the one that he's going to present this idea to, which would be the king. And what I want to do is I want to skip to the end. Because this is how his burden begins, with a prayer before God, remembering God's promise back in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30, where he says, look, if you cast, out, cast us out to all these different places, if you return to me, I will draw you back even from the uttermost parts of the earth. This is what Nehemiah is holding on to. And so when he prays, he says, Lord, listen to your servant, and not just me, but to all of your servants who revere you, who love you, who want to serve you wholeheartedly and not compromisingly. Listen to us so that we can claim this promise, so that we can see you act among your people. And so in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. So I get to spoil the ending, right? So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. And in turning to the very final verses that we had in our readings this week, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. 
After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I, was, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. And I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. So we start with an understanding from this report that the gates of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem are in disrepair, are total rubble. They are open. They are, they are going to be open season for anybody who wants to attack them. And we see here at the end that after Nehemiah is successful in his petition, and after he goes there, after 52 days, they have the wall totally rebuilt and the gates put in. By the hand of God, all of that happened. And so we see in these last three verses, the very thing that, Jer- that Nehemiah, I want to say Jeremiah with Nehemiah all the time, I have no idea why. Um, but that Nehemiah puts guards out on the gate from the people of Jerusalem, locks those gates, doesn't open the gates until the sun is up in the middle of the air so that Jerusalem would be secure. The people of God could think about worshiping now in peace. You know, walls and gates, even to this day, are used for security even here in the United States. A lot of us look for nice places to live, and many of us might look for what is called a gated community, right? What's a gated community? It's a a community with a wall around it. Why do you have a wall around it? Because we only want certain people to be in this place because we're looking for a safe environment, either to retire or for our kids or whatnot, right? Walls are still used. Gates are still used for the purpose of leaving out those who would come in to destroy and steal and and pillage and cause harm. We still use that. Nehemiah only wanted that for the people of Jerusalem so that they would be able to worship. That they would be able to, once the temple is completed, then they can work on on the temple and the building up of the temple and the worship of God in this place now free from worry that somebody could just run in and attack them. And while this is the beginning and the end, believe it or not, my, my sermon is going to focus on the middle. But it's important to see the beginning and the end, right? Right? We've got to understand what happens in the beginning and the end. It starts with the burden of God and ends with the success that God granted. And it didn't take just 52 days. Nehemiah had to go. He had to get supplies, all of those things to get down there. It's after all of those things are gathered that he brings forth his vision. From the time he brings forth his vision to the time of the completion of the wall is 52 days. The idea that it took 52 days, don't be, don't be fooled by that, okay? Lots of preparation went into that beforehand. So the first thing that happens is that God grants him favor with the king, Artaxerxes, okay? And what's amazing about this is I think that when I read this, I'm amazed because 
as he's talking to the king, he says, and I turned and I prayed that God would give me success, right? In the middle of talking to the king. Isn't that you and me? This isn't, I mean, when we, think of, when we think of the prophets, when we think of the kings, we think of these long pre-thought out prayers before God, like, oh God, you know, here is somebody asking a request, like, God, please, please let this be successful. Doesn't that sound like you and me? Right? We're going to work. We're having a bad day. God, please, 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 please let this person be well. Please let this person be there for their shift. Please let, please let this bid go through. Please, please let my business be successful. Please let all, don't we pray like that for real? Grant me favor for what I'm asking in the middle of what I'm doing. Well, that's what Nehemiah does. And by the grace of God, Artaxerxes helps him get everything prepared for this amazing journey that he's going to be on. But what happens when he gets there is he mobilizes the people and the people start building the wall and he experiences opposition. And he experiences opposition in more than one way. He experiences it from the outside. Okay, you got Sanballat and, and Tobiah, and they're there, and what they're doing is they're trying to discourage by mocking the people to begin with. Oh, are you really going to build the wall? Are you going to make yourself king? What you going to do? And trying to discourage the people from doing it. And when that type of discouragement failed, they moved from ridicule to threatening. And they said, well, we see that all of these people are building the wall. We look in chapter 3 and we see all the builders of the wall and they're doing a good job. They're, they're listing all these people by name, taking different sections of the wall and building it all up at once. I think it's so cool, first of all, that God included in his word all the little workers who are building on the wall, all of them being exceptionally important to the completion of this project. Nobody is left out. This person did this, his family did this, this person was working over here. I think that's really cool, don't you think? They're just as important to the story. It's not just, Nehemiah did all this. No, all of these people were a part of building this wall. God was using every last one of them, and they were making good headway. And when they saw that they were making good headway, it turned from ridicule to threats. We're going to come and attack you. You think you're going to build that wall? Oh, no, you're not. Not on our watch. You think you're going to try and actually become king of that place? Now it's not ridicule anymore. Now now we're going to tell other people you're trying to set yourself up. All of these things were happening to discourage the people who were there. On top of that that's happening, you have in chapter 5, very interesting chapter, right? Because in the midst of that, we have threats on the outside, ridicule on the outside coming in. And now from the inside, we have complaints that are happening. Because guess what? The governor before Nehemiah was very high on the taxes for the people that made it very hard for a recovering people to do what they were supposed to do. And they complained to Nehemiah saying, we are selling our children into slavery. Now, this is biblical slavery. This is not American slavery. 
biblical slavery looks much different than American slavery did. They were selling their children, which means they were selling their means of production, okay, that their children would have to work off the debt of their parents because their parents had no money. And according to the Word of God, after every seven years, they were supposed to be released. Now, did Israel ever do that? No. We never saw Israel follow the law that God had prescribed with that. And so seeing this, being sold into slavery, they're complaining to Nehemiah, saying, look at what's happening. We, we, are, we are poor. We're working for you, trying to get this done. We can't even afford our own stuff. And so what Nehemiah does is he does reforms on the taxes, and he doesn't take any more of those taxes. Not only that, he sets the example himself of the type of charity that they were supposed to have one to another as he opens up his home and he says, look, this is what was given to the governor. I never took it for myself. I gave it to everybody else. And there was 150 people he helped with it. Setting for everybody an example of what ought to be while he does that. He says, look, all you others, nobles, stop doing this. And they agreed to stop doing that. And the morale of the people were lifted. But understand, this is an internal struggle right here. He's trying to accomplish a task of getting this wall being built up. And the people are saying, this is what's preventing us from doing what you want us to do. We can't afford to feed our families. You want us to build a wall for you? Are you nuts? Help us out. And so we see struggles happening both on the outside coming in, and on the inside, discouraging getting this task done. Does this not reflect real life? I mean, Nehemiah, like I said, he's the everyman. It's a, it's a thing. I, I look at this, I'm like, dang, that's, <laughs> that hits a little too close to home. I want to do these great things for God, right? And, and it, it may not necessarily be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something great at the church, or I'm gonna, I want to do great things for God. I want my business to be dedicated for God. I have this project that I want to do, that I want God to be glorified in. And every single time you and I plan something like that, we can be guaranteed a couple of things. Number one, we are going to be tested by forces on the outside as well as on the inside. Not just that, the threats and the political maneuvering of Sanballat and Tobias even swayed some of the prophets that were inside the city, even swayed some of the noble people. So they were also tackling the rhetoric that wasn't of God among the people who were there. And yet, through all of that, Nehemiah stood firm. He never gave in to Sam Ballard or to, to Tobias, no matter, no matter what was said. Never gave in. When the threats came down that they were going to attack, he said, okay, one of you has a sword in your hand, you're going to guard the other person who's building the wall. Let's see them try to attack that. Here's a brick. I got your back. Right? And the people were discouraged 
who wanted to discourage Nehemiah from rebuilding the wall and making Jerusalem secure so that after 52 days, despite the internal and external struggles, the wall is completed and everybody can see it's the hand of God and everybody rejoices. Pretty cool thing, right? Even though after that, some of the people there had still bought into the rhetoric, right? We can learn a lot from Nehemiah in these passages. It's amazing to me because you and I have been given a commission by God. You guys know what the commission is, right? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. That's our commission. That's you, that's me, that's everybody, right? That's what we're supposed to do. And like Nehemiah, this isn't a 52 day thing. There's a lot of planning and preparation and stuff that goes into making disciples. In as much as there's a lot of planning and preparation into building the wall of Jerusalem that happened beforehand. I'm reminded every day, my kids right now are 20. 18 and 17. And I'm reminded every single day, my job ain't done yet. My kids are older. I should be on cruise control. Nope, I got to double down right now. Because my kids are older, they can understand more. And sometimes as Christians, we think we just get them in the front door with Jesus where they believe Jesus. That's good. That's not good. That's not good enough. Because Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And that takes some time. And the problem with you and me is that this commission takes time and we are assailed by forces on the outside and on the inside to want to interrupt us from doing the very thing that God has called us to do. God called Nehemiah to build a wall. God calls you and me to build disciples of all men who will listen to us, including in our own families. And every interruption that you and I have kind of disrupts that whole idea of what discipleship is like. And we have felt it greatly, have we not, the last six months. So I don't know about you, when I have an interruption in my daily routine, sometimes the first thing to go, and I hate to say this, I'm a pastor, but sometimes the first thing to go are the disciplines of my faith. I might pray a whole lot. (laughs) Prayer comes in really handy because it's not something I have to do outside of what Nehemiah did. Oh, God, please help me. Probably have a whole lot of that going on. But when it comes to being in the Word and knowing the Word, I mean, remember, Nehemiah appeals at the very beginning to the law of God's promise because he knew it. He had that in his heart and said, hey, we have repented And so hear our prayer, O God, draw us back according to your promise. But I'll be honest with you, when things get thrown, and my schedule gets thrown, for good things as well as bad, not just talking about the pandemic, how that's disrupted all of our lives. I'm talking about when I go on vacation. I go on vacation, it's one of the times that I read the Bible the least. Why? My my whole pattern of life has been disrupted. How many of you relate? You're on vacation. It's like, yeah, I really should have read the word of God while I was gone. 
I mean, I didn't go to church. I didn't do anything else. I, I should... I should have at least, you know, maybe opened up the Bible or read a Bible verse or something like that. But man, Disney World was so fun. Or we were over here at Yosemite and it was so great. And we were thanking God every step of the way. But we were disrupted. And that disruption creates a pattern in our life. And I think the fear for Mark and myself is this. It's been six months. It's been six months. God's commission never changed. You realize that, right? The Great Commission was the same back in March when this whole thing started as it is now in September. And so I I would ask you an assessment real quick of your life. Have you been disrupted in such a way where you're not sharing Christ? Because guess what? My world has changed. Work is harder. Chris mentioned this, you know, in our elders meeting. Just incredible insight. Everything is harder. Just doing our normal stuff is harder. Going out to eat is harder, right? Trying to get together with somebody is harder. Planning a vacation is almost impossible. Doing your normal stuff at work is harder because everybody's reinventing everything all the time. Our whole thing has been assailed, not by our fault, but we're feeling the pressures on the outside of these forces putting all of these changes upon us. And inside, as we're trying to think of, how am I going to support my family? What's going to happen here? And when those things get disrupted, guess who gets cut out most of the time? God does. But His great commission is still for you and me. That we're supposed to be reaching the world for Jesus Christ. That we're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Let me tell you something, and I I mean no disrespect to anybody here, but those baptism waters right up there have not been stirred in a very long time. I'm not just talking about us going out to the world who needs to know Jesus. I'm talking about parents who should be talking to their kids about Jesus and baptizing their own children from inside their house. Because discipleship starts at home. But you and I have been disrupted, haven't we? And this whole idea of making disciples... And understanding that that great commission never went away. And in the middle of all these changes, which are so easy to get our eyes off of the final goal of saying, this is where I need to be. This is what I need to be doing. These are the disciplines I need to stay up on to keep my relationship close with God. These outside forces have changed and our inside forces have changed our priorities. Ephesians chapter 6. Verses we ought to know well. Verses 10 through 20. Talking about the armor of God. As Paul finishes up talking, he says to the Ephesian believers, he says, finally, be strong and in the Lord and in his mighty power. This is how he begins this this passage. 
after everything I've shared with you, the one thing I want you to remember is you need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I want to tell you something right now before I read any more of this. The government is not your enemy. It's not. But they might be being used by these dark forces in this dark world to get your eyes off of Jesus. Our battle is spiritual. You and I need to make sure we're looking at the right enemy. And the enemy of our souls wants to keep our eyes off of Jesus, wants to make a boogeyman out of everything and everybody so that we're not sharing Christ, who's the hope of the world, to the world around us. Nothing else is. Nothing else is. Well, we've all bought into it to a certain extent because we've changed a lot of the way that we live in the middle of all this, some of it placed upon us, but some of it from our own internal struggles, right? And it's taken our eyes off of Jesus to where we're not reaching out the way we ought to be to a world that needs Christ. Therefore, because this is a reality, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit. On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. We should be praying for each other. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Notice what all of that is focused on. Every bit of that is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both that we can stand up strong in it and that we will be able and be ready to deliver it. And that our prayer is that our brothers and sisters in Christ will be prepared for sharing the gospel of Christ. This wasn't a prayer that Paul just said, I'm praying for you these things because you guys are weak. He says, no, pray for me also. Pray for me also in the midst of all of this that I might be strong enough to proclaim the gospel fearlessly as I should. You know why? Because Paul, in the same way as Nehemiah, had forces on the outside and on the inside warring against him for the purpose for which God had called him to, which is spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what you and I are commissioned to do. It's the number one thing we're called to do as believers in Christ. Everything else pales in comparison to sharing the gospel of Christ. 
He's the hope of the world. Not for this life, but for the one to come. This life's going to end, guys. You're not going to stop it. Unless Jesus comes back, this life ends. Nothing stops that. Nothing, nothing, nothing. You can stay at home all day long. Won't stop it from coming. We can do our best to mitigate it, be as safe as we want to. Won't stop it from coming. That's why Jesus never said, put your hope in this life and everything in this life. He said, put your hope in me. He who dies in me shall yet live, right? So where's our hope? Our hope is supposed to be in Christ. That's what we should be sharing to a world right now who's scared to death of death. That's what they're scared of. I've already done three or four funerals this year. I will do more next year. Mark will do more next year. We'll continue to do more. You know why? Because the hope of this world isn't living life forever right here in this broken place. We have one who has fixed the brokenness, who died on the cross for our sin, because sin is what's caused this brokenness. And we have been given a commission by God to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news of Jesus Christ is this. Don't worry. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Anything you're going to face in this world, I've overcome it. That is reason enough to gather together. That is reason enough for us to be in this place and remember that our greatest priority as believers in Christ and people who call themselves by his name is to share the truth of Jesus Christ to a hurting world around us that they might be healed, that they might come to know Jesus. And though their body wastes away and though their body may die, they may be able to live forever with Christ in heaven. Hallelujah. Isn't that, the, isn't that the goal? And for six months, guess what? You, me, everybody else, our eyes have been off of it. I'm so thankful to see all your faces. I'm thankful for you who are online. But our commission's never changed. And just like Nehemiah, We're in a season right now where we have forces on the outside and on the inside that are distracting us from finishing what Jesus commanded us to do. But the good news is this. You read that great commission? And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. We're not in this alone. Never have been. If you're a believer in Christ, we're not in this alone. That you and I can complete the mission that God has called us to. We're in this together. You know, there, there are, and I, and I say this sincerely with love. It's not a matter of shame or anything else. But there are some of you who are at home right now who need to be in fellowship. I'm just going to be honest with you. You need to be in fellowship because we have a commission to do, and we can't do that commission with you being apart from the body of Christ. Period. I'm sorry. It's the truth. And I know some of you are at home for very legitimate reasons concerning this. We're not trying to be, what would I say? We're not trying to um, minimize the idea of of the danger of what this can be. But guys, life is dangerous. We don't know how we're going to live. We don't know how we're going to die. But we know what we're supposed to be doing. 
And so my encouragement for you guys, if you've gone out to eat, you're going out to work, you need to be here. God has a mission for you, period. Those of you who are here, God has a mission for you. It's great that we've come back together in this place and fellowship. I'm excited about that. I truly am. Seeing all of your faces every single week is an excitement thing. But let's be honest with us. This distancing that we've had from one another has prevented us from sharing the gospel to our coworkers, to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to the people in line at Smith's because you've got to stay six feet apart. You can't talk to them. <laughs> Sorry. How you doing? You have a commission from God to share Christ to the world around you who is hurting right now to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, who needs to hear something different than the doom and gloom that their television and their internet stories are filling all over the place. And you and I have the hope of the gospel that we're supposed to disseminate to these people. And you know what? Six months, we've all become a little more shy, haven't we? Let's just be very honest. All of us have. I'm going to speak for myself. I have... We're all so worried about getting too close to somebody. All so worried about whether we have a mask on or not on. The social distancing is social destruction in the idea of this. We are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you can't do that without interpersonal contact. You can't. And I love every single one of you, but you need to invade some spaces of people. Somebody online is going to go send this off to the governor saying, he's telling us to get closer than six feet. Dude, we do that with our families. We do that with our friends. But we've forgotten that this social distance has created a distance where we are now afraid to talk about Jesus to anybody else because it never really comes up. My days have been spent talking more about the stupid COVID stuff than anything else. I can talk to a total stranger for three hours on COVID. Can't you? Why aren't we talking about Jesus? Because the enemy from outside and inside is distracting us from the goal and the mission that God has called us to in Jesus Christ. We need to reclaim that. The time is now to reclaim that. The time is now to remember that. Nehemiah is a great reminder of that. Because if we're focused, God, just like with Nehemiah, is going to give us victory in some of these areas. And we're going to see people coming to Christ right now who might never have come to Christ in any other time. But because these things are so much on their mind, they're going to be open to hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. If we're on task and willing to share. Nehemiah's got a lot of great stuff for us to learn from. Like I said, he's the everyman. He's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not a king. He's a simple man who loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And because of that, he got to see great change because he refused to be distracted by the things outside and inside from the commission God had given him. May you and I choose to be those type of people fitted and ready to deliver the gospel of peace of Jesus Christ to a world that totally needs it. Do you guys stand with me?
Now, at the end of our service today, if you have any prayer needs, our elders will be up front to pray for you. Any needs whatsoever. If you have any other prayer requests, we would encourage you to, you can text your prayer request to the 207-4443 on the back or put it on the prayer cards in the back of the church. We would love to pray for those needs. Our elders come together and pray for those things. We have a lot to pray about, don't we? Any and every circumstance. Let's go to him now. God, I want to thank you for today. God, I pray to you, Heavenly Father, even for myself right now, I lift up before you, just as Nehemiah did. He prayed for his sins and the sins of his people. I pray, Lord, for myself right now. I've been distracted. This whole stuff has has distracted me from your great commission, dear Heavenly Father. And I haven't shared the truth of the Word of God as readily as I could. I looked at my own daughter, Kathleen, who is a great example of of looking at at opportunities to share faith and and reach out to people. And she mentioned to me, I can't remember when it was. I remember it was at McDonald's. And she was like, you should have handed that person a card because she's ready. And I, I just wasn't. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will help me to be ready. We have so many distractions. God, we know life has gotten more complex for all of us, every single one of us. But Lord, we are supposed to be first and foremost people who are called according to your name, people who are known as Christians, people who were originally in the word of God were known as people of the book. Oh God, get us back in your word. Get our children back in your word, dear Heavenly Father. Help us as parents not to, not to take off uh, this time period where it hasn't been as important to get in the word of God. It's all the more important now. Our hope is in Christ. Our kids need to see that. Help us, dear Heavenly Father, as parents to do that. Help us to be sharing Christ to a world that needs. Help us see these waters of baptism stir from people who are professing faith in Jesus Christ. Because we were willing to step out in faith. To want to do your great commission and ask for your help and success. The leading of your Holy Spirit, O oh God. To those who would be receptive to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I know there are many out there in the world. Just help us, dear Heavenly Father, to be faithful. Help us to remember your great commission for our lives. And help us be relentless in pursuing it. And not forgetting it when distractions come. Because the enemy of our souls wants us so much to be distracted. Wants us so much to not focus on the things of Christ. But rather the things of this world. Let us not fall for his ploys, Lord. Help us, dear Heavenly Father. And God, we praise you. We praise you this day, dear Heavenly Father, for your word. We praise you, dear Heavenly Father. I praise you for these people who are right here. May this be a a day of turning for us to get our eyes opened and back on task, dear Heavenly Father, of doing your will. That we talk more about Jesus than COVID, Jesus than politics, Jesus than anything else. Because none of those things are our hope, only Christ is. May that be shown in our lives, our families, dear Heavenly Father. May it be shown in everything that we say and do. That you may be glorified through your servant, Jesus Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.